Welcome to Investing in Integrity. I'm Ross Overline, CEO and co-founder of Scholars of Finance, a rapidly growing organization on a mission to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow. If you're an investor, finance professional, or student aspiring to make an impact with capital, this show is for you. Investing in Integrity brings you conversations with leading minds in finance to help you learn how you can make finance a force for good by investing in integrity. In today's episode, we were joined by Elizabeth Sandler, the founder and CEO of Echo Juliet. Echo Juliet is a consultancy focusing on advising companies on leadership, communication, diversity, and people technology for the new generation of employees. Prior to founding her consultancy, she served as a managing director at the Blackstone Group and its chief operating officer of Blackstone's real estate debt strategies business from September 2016 to August 2018. Prior to that, she was at Deutsche Bank for 15 years as a managing director and divisional COO as well. If that's not enough, she's also on the board of FSKKR Capital, a census, the graduate executive board of the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, and is on our board of directors here at Scholars of Finance. Elizabeth is an absolute dynamo, and I think you'll love hearing from her. In our conversation, we covered the importance of setting and accomplishing long-term goals, what we all can do to empower women in finance, and what it takes to be a good mentor and mentee, and so much more. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Let us know what you think on LinkedIn, Instagram, or shoot us an email at hello at scholarsoffinance.org. And don't forget to subscribe, leave us a review, and share the podcast with your friends and colleagues if you find it valuable. Today, we are so excited to have Elizabeth Sandler joining us for the Investing in Integrity podcast. Where does this call find you today? I am just outside of New York City in Westchester County. Oh, very cool. Very cool. Um, Sunny, warm weather, I hope. (laughs) Hot. (laughs) My AC is faltering, shockingly, today. So it's a little bit toasty right now, but beautiful blue skies. Actually, through my window, I can see the beach right now. There's lots of little kids swimming. So the Long Island Sound is nice and calm. Sailboats. It's beautiful. Amazing. I'm happy to hear it. Mildly jealous. It's still 60s and 70s, partly overcast, partly sunny here in Silicon Valley as it is every single day of the year. Um, Elizabeth, would love to have you start us off by just sharing for our audience a little bit about your story. I've read through a bit of your resume um, for everyone's context, but would love to just have you set the stage for us and, and who we're talking to and hearing from. Sure. I mean, I think it was interesting when you were reading my bio and the all the companies that I worked for and that they were all financial services companies from the point of which I graduated from Duke all the way through to starting my own business. What's interesting is that I never set out for a career in finance. I My entire career at, at, when I was at Duke, I was a sociology major. I wasn't a finance major. I, I'm a first gen and my parents didn't know anyone that had come from banking or had been investment bankers or I don't even think hedge funds existed back then. So for me to now look and see that I had this like 25 plus year career in finance, it, it almost feels like accidental that I just fell into it. And the way I did fall into it was because I always knew I wanted to be a leader. I had, as a sociology student, I had studied people at work. I like had a copy of Rosabeth Moss Canners and the men and women of the corporation that has like the pages still falling out of it because it was written in the 70s. And I have my original copy from university. And that's what I wanted to do. So when I was at Duke, the Prudential was recruiting for a leadership training program. So right out of school into a management training program, it was an amazing program. And it just so happens that it was really my only financial services interview. I wasn't like Goldman Sachs was on campus. I didn't even really know what they did or who they were at the time. So Now you look back and you think, my gosh, I've had this amazing career in finance. But the truth is that I really fell into it. It wasn't until I went to the Wharton School that I said, okay, if I'm going to do this finance thing, I really should know a little bit more about finance. And so I went to Wharton. I majored in finance as well as strategy, as well as information systems, and felt that, okay, now I have a little bit more pedigree in, in the finance world. But The real lesson to be taken away from all of this is that finance isn't as inaccessible as I think a lot of people starting out in their careers think. I I speak to a lot of our students that are wondering whether careers in finance are right for them. 
And the truth is that I think it can be a little bit intimidating. And it really, once the gloss is off of it, you really, anyone can really make a career in finance. It's incredible hearing that with such a prolific and, and I think a very impressive career in financial services, you sort of stumbled into it. I think a lot of young people, especially trying to enter the industry, become an investor. They think that everyone that's made it in finance knew that they wanted to be in finance by age 14 and they plotted their career starting that day. Um, but we, it goes to show we learn so much about ourselves over time. One of the questions I wanted to ask is, when you look at the period earlier in your career, from Prudential to AXA, um, eventually landing at Deutsche Bank, um, what did you learn about yourself and about finance and about what you wanted out of a career, sort of in that early period of your career? You know, I think it's always easier to look back and, and say, like, the 23-year-old me, you know, had a plan. <laughs> and the truth of the matter is, I just wanted to do well, right? I just wanted, again... I was a first gen and my, um, and my dad had, had passed away even when I was in university. And so here I was out and, you know, my mom had now never worked. So I was really not only the first generation college graduate, but I was the first person to now have a core, you know, the potential of a, of a successful corporate career in my whole family. And so I just got there and just said, do, you know, do well and just be a sponge, learn as much as you can and, and figure it out as you go. So I would say for the first two years, I just saw it as an extension of, of university in a lot of ways where I was just trying to look at every single person that I met and say, what can I learn from this person? Now I look back and I think, yeah, okay, that was a really good strategy. And it suits me because I was a sociology major and I'm obsessed with human behavior and people at work. But I honestly think even now for the people that I mentor, I, I tell them if you're thinking about joining, a, you know, they say, oh, should I do equity capital markets or debt capital markets? And I say, well, I don't know. What are the people like? And they, and they look at me thinking, well, you're an expert banker. You, are, you spent 16 years in an investment bank and you asked me about the people. And the truth is like equity capital markets and debt capital markets are very different in terms of what you do every day. But if you can't start first from what you can learn and how you're going to interface with the individuals, then it really doesn't matter when you're starting out in your career, what product, what industry group, what part of the finance world you join. It's really more about continuing the journey of your own self-exploration and figuring out how you can learn from those around you. Incredibly insightful. I oftentimes will tell my students something a mentor of mine told me early in my career. If you ever have to make a choice, always choose development over dollars. Right. Don't go for advice. don't go for the larger paycheck. Go for the people who will teach you the challenges that will grow you, maximizing your learning because learning will compound over time. And maximizing for learning throughout your career will result in dollars. The inverse is not necessarily true. Um, it's, it's, so I, I love that. I love this notion of focusing on the people since those are ultimately who you will be learning from, who will be teaching you, mentoring you, coaching you, um, or the converse. I'm curious, you had moved between a few firms early on and then ended up spending a decade and a half plus at Deutsche Bank. Uh, what led you to choose to stay at Deutsche Bank? Um, and I'd love to hear about how you felt about the individuals or what you would recommend to individuals earlier in their career, how they should think about moving vertically within a firm versus across firms. Yeah, I think, you know, you don't, you don't start out thinking, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to be at one company for like my entire career. You really are looking forward to the future of your life and just saying, like, I'm going to be opportunistic and see what comes. And I was really thankful and really fortunate that I was able to find an organization that I continued to grow and learn and develop and ended up being able to stay there for so many years. Um, and I'm still very close to the firm. Like I very often will still refer to it as we, because I'm just so, you can't be at a firm for that long and not be so connected to the firm's success and still a shareholder, you know, and, and just having so many people there. So, you know, for me, I think that it worked in terms of, like, let's just say it this way. I, I, was, I, I hesitate to say this because I'm afraid people will roll their eyes a little bit, but vertical careers are actually fairly easy. When you come out of university and, the, and, and you're an analyst in an investment bank or whatever business you're in, and, the, and it's two to three years as an analyst, and then it's two to three years as an associate, and then two to three years is whatever the next level is, vice president, and it goes up from there. 
you, you come in and you look at this career path and you think, okay, I want to be a managing director or a partner or so whatever the, the senior title is in your organization. You, you almost get a little bit too focused on what a vertical career means. And I, and I coach a lot of people early in their career where they're like, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I'm trying to get promoted to vice president or I'm trying to get promoted from vice president to director or principal or principal to MD. And I tell people to just like take a deep breath and take a little bit of a step back because I honestly, I was an MD in my career, I think maybe at 30, 32, something like that, early 30s. And then it took so much of the pressure off because I knew I could never be promoted again, corporate title wise, because there's not, there was nothing higher. Then it just became about focusing on my own development, right? Focusing on finding jobs and roles that were interesting. I was 32 years old reporting to the CEO of the region and knew there was nowhere higher I could go. And I ended up having to take a two-step demotion in order to be able to like find a new path. So I think we have to be really careful when we think about like vertical careers within one organization versus thinking, oh, I can do better by, you know, jumping to different firms and I can get promoted if I recruit at a, you know, at a different firm. I honestly think we are a little bit too caught up in the hierarchy. It's the one thing, there's a lot of things, but it's one of the big things in finance that I really wish we were a little bit softer about because I think people can get, especially young people can get a little bit paralyzed by thinking about the, the titles and the levels and, you know, what does an analyst do? What does an associate do? When do I, when do I get to, to meet with the clients? When do I get to go on the road show? And um, I, I just wish it was a little bit more fluid because I had a much more fluid career and I, and I felt that I was a lot more in control of it and I got a lot more out of it because of it. Yeah, you in the past talking about this notion of a vertical career and even hearing that, you know, you were a managing director in your early 30s already. Um, you have in your, some of your work that you do through Echo Juliet, you produce a lot of content, which I find incredibly helpful. I know a lot of our members find it very helpful. Um, and in, in some of your work, you've mentioned that everyone ought to think about their unique service proposition. Mm. Uh, can you tell our audience a little bit about what that is? What is a USP um, and how your unique service proposition has changed as you've grown throughout your career? Sure. You know, I think there's a lot on the market right now. You can read a lot in the media about purpose, right? And everyone's like, oh, fulfilling your purpose or the Japanese ikigai, your um, reason for being, right? And so I think there's like a, a plethora of amazing content out there. And the unique service proposition is, is quite in line with all of that, except for the fact that I don't think people have like just one purpose. I honestly think a unique service proposition is really about thinking about your own unique strengths. So what makes you different from the next person? And part of those strengths is not just what you're good at, but what you enjoy doing, right? Which is where the Japanese Aikigai comes from. Um, so that you, you, right. you have both what you're good at, but what you enjoy doing. Mm -hmm. If you can figure that out and then look at, well, what, you know, what does the world need? And when I say even what does the world need? Ross, it can be as simple as like one person. Like what does the person in the queue behind me need right now? Because does he need to move around me and let him go first because he's in a bigger hurry? Like just constantly <laughs> being aware of what individuals need. And it can be one person. It can be your team. It can be your company. It can be your client base. It can, it can be the world, right? So I think by just being really open to saying, me as an individual, what do I bring to the world? What do I like doing and what am I good at? And how do I share that with the world? How do I not just keep that behind walls? How do I make sure other people benefit from what is naturally designed to benefit for me? I think that's where you start. If you start there, your unique service proposition, that, that's just the foundation of it. So it just builds from there. For me, that has evolved into as part of my career. So I think when I started out my career, as I said, I had studied about human behavior at work and I was really, I'm an, I'm an introvert by, uh, by nature. So I was the person who sat in the conference room and watched the dynamics. I watched how people would respond to each other. And every once in a while, I would have a, a coffee conversation with someone and I would say, have you noticed when you, you know, when you speak that, you know, people like cringe a little bit because you're, you're, you kind of sound like you're attacking them. They're like, no, I hadn't noticed that. 
And I'm like, it doesn't bother me, but it's just something to be aware of, right? The way you're communicating. I was like constantly giving my friends, these are friends. These weren't people I wasn't like calling some random person, right? These were like colleagues. We had a strong, trusting relationship. And uh, they would say, really? I have to be more, I'm going to pay more attention. And then they come back to me and say, oh my gosh, you were totally right. Like, why does the boss roll his eyes in me? I never noticed. And so that was my unique service proposition early in my career was literally just being a good friend and a good peer and and taking my observations that I was using for my own career development and helping other people. So it started really small in a micro way. And then as I built over the course of my career, it just became really natural and really part of what I do. And so now in Echo Juliet last year, we started a spinoff called Juliet Works specifically for helping career women. And that's where I personally get to engage with so many women at work because that's what I've been doing for the last 25 years. I've been a woman at work. So now I am doing, you know, I have a role in a, in a mission and a job in the world that does leverage my unique service proposition, but it started really small and it built over the last two decades. I love this notion. Thank you, Elizabeth. I love this notion that your unique service proposition, not only is it this notion of Ikigai, right, where your strengths, your passions, what the world needs and how you can make how you can actually have a career where those all intersect. But it can be as unique, not just to you, but it can be as unique as what the moment, what the person at the desk behind you in the queue behind you, as you mentioned, actually needs. Right. And I think Oftentimes, I was actually meeting with one of our advisors who's over at Goldman Sachs, and he was saying, have you ever considered teaching mindfulness to the scholars of finance members? Um, If there's one thing that I had learned or known at age 18, 19, 20, 21, it was that I should start practicing mindfulness and being present. Mm. So I can actually, in your case, you can actually capture some of those, those insights, some of those observations you know, of the dynamics in the room, but even of what the person right next to you needs right now and to be able to actually take that in and, and see what they need. Um, right. No, and- you're right. And that's our tagline at Echo Juliet is actually mindfully leading the next generation. Because I have a lot of clients that say, I can't meditate. And I'm like, well, no, first of all, I never tell people they should meditate. It's just that bad principles. I'm not a missionary for meditation. I am a bit of an advocate for conscious leadership, which is much more about just one active listening, but just staying a little bit more aware of what's happening around you, because it's amazing that that little bit goes so, so far. And so with my clients, we, we don't practice, I don't sit and meditate with my clients, but I do practice, we do practice mindfulness. I give them tools and techniques, really simple things. We have this fun thing. Um, I'm trained as a mindfulness teacher. So one of the techniques that we learned in our in our mindfulness program and the basic one called uh, MBSR is the, um, the, they call it the subway meditation, which is when you're riding a subway or a bus or wherever you are, it can even be when you're driving in the car. It's called the counting meditation. And you just count people, right? You count the people in your subway car. And then when they come off, you count. The people. And what it does is it just focuses you on being aware of your surroundings. It's not like, People think meditation is about getting rid of the thought in your head. It's not. It's about being aware of of the fact that you have thoughts. So you can be wide awake in practicing mindfulness. It doesn't mean you have to sit in silence and listen to your breath in order to practice mindfulness. Mm-hmm. I, I appreciate it. I am, I am a big champion of mindfulness. I tell everyone around me to, med- to meditate daily. Um, you know me though, like anything that I think is helpful, I just want the whole world to know about it. So um, I always talk about my 5 a.m., 15, 20 minute meditation ritual with my students and hopefully encourage them to meditate. Maybe not at five in the morning. I know that's a bit of a stretch for most of them, but hopefully at least we can get them for a few minutes a day, just, just sitting and being mindful, even in the subway, as you mentioned. You had mentioned, um, and I've heard you share in the past, that earlier in your career, you seized leadership opportunities that weren't necessarily covered in your job description. Mm. And I think it takes you know, a degree of mindfulness of knowing your unique service proposition to identify them and then to act on them. Can you tell us a bit more how you managed to develop leadership skills, surpassing those entailed by the formal positions you held? How did you rise above your station time and time again to have such a rapid ascent during your career? Yeah, you know, I definitely, I definitely did. I was a gap filler, right? I would really take a look at the entire organization and I would analyze every team and every organization and thought, okay, what would make this business more successful? What would make it more productive? What would make people enjoy it more? 
and and looking at each of the individuals and where did they have roles where they just didn't seem well suited or where maybe they were struggling or where they would only take something halfway. And I would map the gaps. And then I would go to my peer or I would go to my boss or I would go to the management committee with an idea. And I would just say, listen, I have an idea. And first of all, I would have to make sure I could find room in my own schedule, right? So first I would have to make sure okay, what do I have that's in, look at myself. What do I have that I'm doing that I kind of am not all that engaged with anymore. I can do it in my sleep and who else can I delegate it to? And what, you know, I mean, you name it, anyone, an intern, an assistant, a, like a peer, a team lead, my boss, like it does not matter for me. I was never like precious about the hierarchy. If I thought someone could, would be interested or grow or develop from taking on a particular role, I would package it up for them and I would offer it to them as part of their job description. And that would create some room. I was always willing to let go let go of things so that I could bring in other things. And time and time again, I would just start adding things that would make everybody more effective. That would make my boss look good, would make the team look good, that, that people were happy to get rid of stuff or partner with me. And really often I would look at other functions, right? So um, at one point I was the head of strategy reporting to the regional CEO. And I was looking for things that I, where I could make my mark and I could really help the, the region have much more. It was, it would be really like a branch office at the time because at Deutsche Bank, we had only just bought um, Bankers Trust. And so we were still really new as like DBBT in the US. And we were really trying to build a franchise. And I just started mapping and saying, well, gosh, we don't do anything for cross-functional leadership. And I went to the HR person who was in charge of leadership development. She was a a director at the time. And I just started meeting with her and said, what are your career goals? What are you trying to do? What's your footprint? And I figured out pretty quickly she wanted to be promoted. I figured out she would love more exposure to my boss, who was the CEO. And we partnered together and we built a leadership forum for vice presidents, 200 VPs across every business in the region. We had Coach K. I didn't pick him as the speaker, but it was amazing as a dookie that I got to introduce Coach K as our leadership speaker. He was awesome. And we had him come and speak. And then we had internal presentations and we had leadership workshops. And it was it was absolutely an amazing event that I just added to my job description that became like part of what I did. But meanwhile, it was really more about the, the leadership team within the HR department. It was their agenda that I was actually advancing. But then there I was up on stage introducing Coach K uh, because my boss thought it was an amazing idea when he was trying to figure out who do we have that are Duke alumni that could introduce him. And there were only three of us and I ended up being the one that got picked. So again, it was one of those things where when I led for someone else, it, it ended up being, it's one of the highlight, like fun moments of my career. And it wasn't ever what I intended it for, to be. That's incredible to hear. I appreciate the story of how that program got developed. And it actually sort of segues into a whole series of questions I wanted to ask you about developing long-term career goals. Um, you will encourage the leaders often that you train, as I understand it, to develop strategy maps. Of course, a management tool popularized in the 90s, um, something you're a major proponent of still to this day. Can you tell us a bit more about what a strategy map is? Sure. Yeah, it's very 1990s. Right? I think I must have been, yeah, it came out right before I was in business school. So all the consulting firms were using them at the time. And at, at the time, actually, most almost all strategy maps started with generate share, shareholder value creation, right? That was the big, uh, the big trend in the 90s. We've since moved on to... Um, much more stakeholder management and, and and much broader terms in terms of what we're trying to achieve. But at the time, it was um, shareholder value creation. And then you break down from there, you'd say, okay, well, what generates shareholder value? Well, profitability generates shareholder value. Okay, well, what's within profitability? Reven- revenues and expenses. And okay, well, what, um, what, you know, what's what includes in revenues. And then you would talk about clients and it just builds. And then you would say, well, what else besides profitability? Well, brand value, right? And what you do when you build down in a strategy map is you very quickly end up hitting all of the departments that a lot of companies call infrastructure or even worse, back office. And what you realize really quickly is that they're integral to whatever, to your strategy. They all are important. You, you can't have revenue if you don't have human resources. And people are like, what? 
And until you map it and see, oh, well, wait a minute, human resources is in charge of recruiting talent and developing talent and growing leaders and reward and recognition. And they're like, well, of course, and we have a sales force and you can't have a sales force unless you have HR and we can't have revenue unless you have a sales force. So I always found, especially as a chief operating officer, when I had responsibility for all of those types of functions, I always built a strategy map because I wanted everyone to see how important internal communications was to our top line goal, right? Or bottom line goal. And so for me, strategy maps have been essential. I, I've even I've even when the rest of the world moved on for them, I still hold on to them. And now from a very personal perspective, I have a slightly different uh, different format and different tool. We we call it value bricks, but it's based on a strategy map, which is just much more about you as a as an individual in terms of what your ambition is and what factors into that ambition, right? So I had a client the other day who was, um, she said, oh, I have three ambition statements. I, you know, I can't make it one ambition statement. And so I said, okay, read me your three ambition statements. And what I realized was that she was at the second level. That's all it was, right? She just hadn't figured out how those three things rolled together. And it was something really simple because one was very career-based, one was very personal relationship-based, and one was very impacting the world-based. And so I said, you know, honestly, your ambition is just to have be a well-rounded contributing member of society and have a fulfilling life, fulfilling and successful life. And she was like, oh, okay. Like as if it was nothing, right? And I thought, that's a pretty, that's a pretty bold <laughs> ambition, to be honest. And but she had the harder part done, which was the next level down, saying, what are the three components? And then breaking down, okay, well, what is it going to take to impact the world, to have the types of relationships I want, and to have the type of career that... So that's how I do it with individuals, is, is very conceptually quite similarly, so that you get down all into the micro level, which is when you start your day at 5 a.m. meditating for 15 minutes... Why? Why? That's down at the bottom level. And what does it roll up to? Because it does. You know that very well. You, whether you have the map or not, you know intuitively that that contributes to this part of your effectiveness, which contributes to this, which makes you such a successful CEO. So that's why you do it, because it's part of your map. Um, when we talk about this notion of strategy maps, of master plans, right, of having, of having our plans for our careers um, throughout one's life, people should expect them to change. And I want to ask you for our audience's sake, how should individuals think about using sort of a strategy map or a master plan for their career early on when their personal and professional preferences will change over time, right? We're bound to grow. I, when I think about myself at age 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, I thought I had essentially a strategy map. I had a, at the time a very clear picture of what I wanted to do. There were some areas or levels where I was, you know, at level one, it was sort of abstract. I hadn't got down to level two or three necessarily. And there were other parts where I had very detailed, clear objectives, goals. And now at age 30, 10 years later, I can't believe I just turned 30. And a decade later, my personal preferences have evolved. My professional preferences have evolved. If five, 10 years ago, you said, Ross, you'll be the CEO of a nonprofit called Scholars of Finance, inspiring character and integrity in the finance leaders and investors of tomorrow, I would have laughed at you <laughs> um, because I had my path to private equity mapped. Um, I, I had a whole host of other goals. Um, right. I, didn't, I would not have ever thought this was going to happen. Um, so I can attest personally to as you get to know yourself better, your plans change. But from your expert experience and with your clients, how do you coach them to use that strategy map or plan early on? And how do they think about its evolution over time? Yeah, you know, I think that um, I think you're totally right. You can't you can't over plan your career, right? You or, or you can't even over plan your life's ambition. I think that people can have a vision for themselves, right? They can have a vision and, and it can be very often influenced by others in the world. Um, and, and I don't think people should set out to aspire to be someone else, but I think people can see what's possible when they look at others in the world. Let, let's take Oprah, for example, right? Like did the 18 year old Oprah say someday I'm going to be Oprah? right? There was no Oprah when Oprah decided <laughs> that she, no, she said, um, and I've listened to her and read a lot of her work. So I know this, right? Like I want to be, I want to be on, I want to be on the news. I love, I want to be on television. I want to be a reporter. And that's what she, you know, and that's what she wanted to do. And she wanted to be a news anchor. And it turned out she wasn't all that great at being a news anchor. And she got demoted to the um, daytime talk show. Like she was doing the morning talk show. 
And and boom, there she was. There became <laughs> Oprah. That was day one of Oprah becoming Oprah, right? And I think that, you know, so and the and I think to this day, Oprah would not say she ever dreamed of being Oprah. She just is her, right? She just keeps building and she wants to give in the world and she wants to make the, the world a better place and she leads with her heart. And I think it's quite evident in terms of where the success comes. And so I think when we look at people like that, I think there is a lot that we can learn in terms of the power of having a vision, but the power of just saying anything is possible. People like that show us anything is possible, but let's just like think about what I can do right now. And if it means I want to be a news anchor, then just go for that. But staying mindful, staying awake to it and and being willing to move and change your plan when it's not adapting for you and listening to yourself, right? If she had sat there and said, I feel like a failure because I was demoted from the nighttime news to the morning talk show, then we would all be less, the world would be lesser for it because she would have given up, right? And instead she didn't. She embraced what she was naturally good at. So that's what I tell people early in their career is it's okay. Like pivot. You're not supposed to, you're kind like forget like ready, aim, 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 fire. It's like ready, fire. And then like move the target around if you need to. And like pull it like pull another arrow out and like try again, like just keep going. It's okay. Um, because I, I always used to say I was never going to be an entrepreneur, that I didn't have it in me. I made my whole career as a number two. I was really happy to be the, the woman like behind on the side of the stage, watching my boss in front of thousands of people, you know, quite happily to say like, Oh, you messed that line up. Oh, and Oh, he forgot that he forgot to say that. Right. I, I, I made sure they wrote it perfectly for him. And, I, I thought that that was that was who I was. That I was just a really good number two. And then the, things changed, and I said, "No, it might, it's my time. It's my time to do something that where I am the number one. I am the lead, and now I have a team that looks to me to, and I have to find my own number two. And um, but I, it's honestly, the eighteen-year-old self, my thirty-year-old self, even my forty-year-old self would never have fathomed that I would start my own business. So it's all possible and you just have to stay open to, to the art of the possible. Thank you, Elizabeth. I, I appreciate you sharing. It actually segues back a bit into your own career. You know, after a Deutsche Bank for over a decade and a half, you had a, a couple of years at Blackstone where you, where you stopped and then you started Echo Juliet. Can you tell us a bit more for the audience's context about what precipitated the decision to leave Deutsche Bank, go over to Blackstone, um, do your time there and then now from Blackstone to Echo Juliet. Can you help us understand sort of that, the most recent progression? Yeah, sure. You know, the um I loved I loved my role at Deutsche Bank when I left. And I always tell people the best time to leave a job is when you don't have to or don't need to, right? When you're not miserable. It's really hard for people when they just get to this point where they have a toxic boss or they don't feel like they're progressing in their career. I was still in a really good place. Um, but of of a variety of different events had happened. One, I was raising children in a foreign country. Um, my children were born in America, but being raised in Britain, and they were fairly British. And I felt like while that's been great for them, they also could use a little bit of Americana. I think that would make them better global citizens. Um, Brexit was happening. I had been in uh, the UK for quite a bit of time. And I also looked at my career and where I was in the organization. And I was only one level. I reported to a management committee member. So the only step up for me was um, was to move up to the management committee. And I looked at that and I said, it's not my career aspiration. Being on the Deutsche Bank Management Committee isn't really, like I, I, it's not what I want to do. I want to keep growing sideways in terms of impact and in terms of growth and learning and development. I don't need to move up to that level and I looked at all the paths that were open to me and, and where I was going to be able to, what I was going to be able to do over the next several years and realized my growth was just going to be slowed down. It, it, I still loved my job. I loved the people. It was an amazing role, but I was just, it wasn't going to, I wasn't going to be progressing at the pace that I wanted to. And this is not a financial thing. I totally mean about my own personal development and the challenge. And um, so I said, you know, it's time to do something different. I had a former colleague at Deutsche that had, had gone to Blackstone a year earlier. And I told him, you know, I'm going to take some time off. And he said, no, wait, wait a minute. You have to come to Blackstone and help me. I'm building a new business. You know exactly how to do it. You're, you know, you were, I, we were in the same business years ago. We were peers for years. And he said, please, please come to this business. And I said, oh my gosh, how do you turn down Blackstone? I would love to be there. I would get to learn the buy side. I had, they had been a client. I had advised. I had risk managed the buy side, but I had never been inside of it. 
And the, the role that I was taking was to be a COO that had both hedge funds, had private equity funds, and had a publicly traded REIT. And I thought, this is amazing. And I said to him, I'll, I'll come for two years um, because like, I really do want to like do something different in the world. I knew I, I wasn't sure exactly what, but I knew I wanted to do something and I wasn't sure exactly what. So I gave him two years. I went for two years. He On the day I left, he said, I really thought you'd stay longer. I said, no, I promised you that that was what I was going to do. And again, an amazing firm. I'm, I still am very close with them and speak to them quite frequently about their strategy and their growth. I'm, I'm a vest, I have vested interest in that firm as well. Um, so I, I'm, you know, I, I, I loved what I got out of it, but it was just one of those things where it was just time to, it was time to move on. And, and I was at that point in my career where I knew I needed to do something, something big for myself. It's so cool to hear that this passion, this desire to grow has propelled you so far uh, and even to take such meaningful material steps and pivots in your career. Um, you've talked about in some of your literature about how individuals can profitably use Maslow's hierarchy of needs to guide their career choices. And a lot of what I hear you sh sharing sounds a lot like self-actualization, right? Sort of this con this constant process of self-actualization. Um, if you feel like that's a, a fair categorization of it. And a question that I'd love to ask is, when you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, what does prioritizing health, which is the bottom of the bottom of that pyramid, um, demand of one in a sector where 80, 90, 100 hour work weeks are not unheard of even today? You know, if, on the path to self-actualization, when so many of our listeners are in investment banking or venture capital or private equity or asset management, they're in banking, um, they're working 80 hours a week, and they're on that path, hopefully, to self-actualization, or at least with your help, we can get them on the path to self-actualization. Um, what's the role that health plays in that? And, and how does one preserve and protect their health um, in, in your perspective? Yeah. I recently did a LinkedIn post about Maslow. Um, I'm I am a Maslow groupie for sure. And um, what I talked about was the fact that like when it was first presented as a pyramid, um, Maslow had never conceived of it as a pyramid. And um, so it's really much more of a fluid model. And it, like, think about it almost as each level is like a wave. So the idea of as you move through your, your development, health remains the need. It's not that you like check the box on your safety and safety needs and, and, and health needs and then move to the next level. And then if you all of a sudden sacrifice them, you move, you move back down, right? You, as you go through life, all you, it becomes more complicated because all of the levels and, and Maslow's model um, start to impact you. And it means that the further along you get in your development and your career, you have to figure out to do exactly what you said, which is balance. So you have to make sure that you're not sacrificing really basic needs at the bottom of the pyramid. And it's more than just your like the hours that you work and your physical health. And it's a lot about the psychological safety too, in terms of the, the environment that you're in and whether or not the work environment that you're in is providing trust and and makes you feel because if, if they if it is then you would be able to go to your boss or go to human resources or whoever it is and say I, I can't do these 120 hour work weeks like like and, and for without fear of retribution without fear of losing your job without, and to have them be able to say oh my gosh okay you're right that is a little inhumane and when I hear these stories about all of these um, young people at investment banks or private equity or VC wherever it is that end up like every couple of years we have this like crisis where they end up in the hospital or, or worse. And you just think like, we, why, like, why, why, why wasn't it flagged earlier? Why didn't like, where were we in terms of the, the trust and the communication of that happening? So I think each individual has to stay really in touch with themselves in terms of when are they pushing themselves too far? Because it's the, it's the trigger point for going on the burnout cycle because you start to get to this point where you like step, there's 12 stages of burnout. And I think stage four or five, I don't have them memorized, is when you start ignoring your own needs, right? So when you start saying, no, I'm fine. Like more, if, you, if you're drinking more than half a cup of coffee a day to get through the day, then like you're in trouble because you clearly rely on something outside of your body. <laughs> so I think when people real, like when people start to realize like, wait a minute, I'm starting to neglect my own needs, whether it's 
sleep or whether it's physical fitness or whether it's time with family or friends, like human connection, whether it's reading, whether it's meditating, like when you're sacrificing some of those things that really make us as strong individuals, then something is not right in the workplace. And I know it's really easy to say now looking back, because I certainly was that person with the laptop at, you know, three in the morning whimpering saying, I can't believe I'm working on this model, you know, in the middle of, you know, in the middle of the night or that I, you know, slept in the office last <laughs> night. Like I definitely was that person. I definitely had those days. Um, now, once I became a manager, I started like crushing it when I saw it happening. I was like, no, no, why, why do we have this culture? But it's hard. We, 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 we as an industry need to break through that. We really need to get to the point where, you know, the world needs to slow down a little. And it's hard. It's hard because of a different model. It's not Maslow's model. It's prisoner's dilemma model, because there will always be someone that says, if you're working less, I'm working more, right? As a company or as individuals. And so until we can get to that point where everybody realizes the win-win is a much more balanced life, we're going to always have that unfortunate model where there's, you know, where there's a race to the top in terms of how hard you work. Um, but I'm still hopeful and I still feel that we can create firms that can show it's, it's a much better long-term strategy to really manage life in, in a much more holistic way. That's really interesting. Um, I've not thought about the prisoner's dilemma um, applying to the insane work hours that you have as an investor, um, especially when you're trying to differentiate yourself. Um, You've in the past have said, hey, it's important to be known for something, Mm -hmm. right? It's important to be known for something, sort of have that brand at your firm with your colleagues and peers. Um, and if you're the person that's working less than everyone else or that you know, you're the person that doesn't answer the the text message or the email on Saturday, what is the implication um, for what you are known for? Uh, and that sort of segues into a question I was really curious to ask you. Um, you often talk about the importance of being known for something. How can an individual establish their reputation, especially early in their career and throughout their career? Um, and how do they really then define what they want to be known for? How do I, how do we define what do we want to be known for? And then how do we establish that over time? Yeah, I honestly think it's much simpler than that. I think it's just about authenticity. I really think the more, like the more self-awareness that we have, the more introspective we are, the more we can be known for who we really are, right? So like, if you ask people that, and I know that when I had my 50th birthday, my siblings went around the world and had friends make a video. Um, I think the question was, what do you love most about Elizabeth, right? And so I don't say, I say this with all the humility in the world that what my friends said they loved about me was that I was dependable, I was generous, I won't embarrass myself by listing all the other things, but they were all really basic things and that they, and it was quite consistent. Like I I was, oh, and I'm a good storyteller. I was really surprised how many of them thought I was a good storyteller. And I thought, wow, these are really interesting things that I'm known for because that's just what I do. I never set out and said, okay, let's see, how can I be a successful senior executive? I need to be known to be dependable. Uh, and generous and as a good and a good storyteller. And I'm going to go to storyteller training, right? I just, that is who I am, right? That's how I lead. That's how I communicate. I'm more comfortable telling stories than I am, you know, as anything else, right? It just happens to be a safety place for me, a comfort zone in order to be able to make a point. And so that those became the things that I'm known for and people apparently love it. So I don't think that you have to be so crafty as to decide what is the right formula for what I should be known for. I think it is about figuring out how to authentically showing up with authenticity and, and, and having that work for you and figuring out how to leverage that, leverage those strengths to be successful in your career, which is where the personal career plan and strategy map all come back in because you end up injecting all your strengths in there to say, ah, okay, I can make this box work because of these particular strengths. So I think authenticity is really the key there. So it's just, it's identifying, it's knowing ourselves, becoming self-aware, authentically being ourselves and knowing what are our strengths, what do we care about? And then from there, it's just, it's pursue opportunities, right? Be mindful, be present to opportunities to serve, to help, to provide value that are aligned with those and just operate from that place at all times. 
Super simple. You just wrote the whole book. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> perfect. Perfect. Um, thank God we have it recorded. So we all know where it came from. No, I'm kidding. Um, all from you and our advisors and, and our, our mentors and directors. Um, Elizabeth, just five minutes left. I wanted to ask you two quick questions. Um, because uh, we're coming up on time, and I, I know you're very busy. Um, Juliet works, right? You're trying to help coach and, and help women in the workplace be successful with their careers, with their lives. Um, we'd just love to hear, what does it mean in your eyes to empower women? What does empowering women mean to you? Um, what are the things that women can do for themselves to be successful? What are the things that women can do to help each other? What are the things that men in the workplace can do to help the women in the workplace? Um, what is sort of your your vision strategy and some of the things that you coach and teach around how women can advance and, and really be their best? Sure. I mean, I think for me, it starts with my the companies that I work with, right? And the companies that I work with, uh, it, for me, is very much about in building inclusive cultures, right? And I don't do DEI consulting. I have partners who do, and I can bring them in to help clients anytime. But for me, it really is about making sure that we have cultures and organizations that don't just care about being successful, but really care about the individuals within that organization. Because if you have a company that really cares about the people and says, listen, I'm not going to put profit ahead of people. I'm going to like make sure that I can be a profitable, productive organization without sacrificing people and purpose and the planet and, and really important things in terms of my footprint on the world. Then you have the foundation for empowering everybody, women, men, it, do, it doesn't matter, right? Then you have, you have a place where people can show up and be who they want to be and be their authentic selves and not worry about whether or not they have to leave at two o'clock in the afternoon because they have children to go pick up, man, man or woman. I've worked on a trading floor in London during Christmas season in Britain. We have the nativity plays. Every child's school has them. And man or woman, you like run off the trading desk because you're like, I'll be back in 45 minutes. I got to go to the nativity play. It's just a British thing. And, it, and we're like, yeah, yeah, no problem. I'm covering, right? And it was like, this is a trading floor at a major global investment bank. And we just knew it was a cultural thing, regardless of whether you're American or British or Italian. If your kid was in a school, you were doing, or whether you were Jewish, it didn't, you didn't even have to be celebrating Christmas. It was just the thing the school was doing. And so I've lived in cultures where I've seen it work, where you don't, it, and that wasn't about gender, right? And so I think it starts there. It really starts with having a leadership team that says, we really care about people regardless of, of any other finer points about how you describe those people. For me, I happen to have been a woman in financial services. I made a an entire career in a male-dominated industry. I know it really well. I know how not to sacrifice my own leadership style because people are saying, be more this or be more that or act more like the men. I never did any of that. I really try to empower women to be able to not have to sacrifice who they are and to be able to be able to speak up for their needs and their choices. And, and all, again, I feel everyone should be able to do that. I'm just better able to speak to the women and to, and to help them to do it. So that's why for me, empowering women or empowering anybody is just about making sure that they have an environment where they feel safe and where they feel they can thrive and, and they feel that they can be themselves and be the most successful version of themselves. Because that's the top of your Maslow pyramid, right? It's self-actualization in terms of their full potential. Um, then Maslow actually added, he had another layer that he added later. It wasn't in the, the original model, but was, which was transcendence. And Scott Barry Kaplan has now written a book about it, which I'm in the middle of reading. Um, but the transcendence was when you even go past the self and you go up to the next level where you can say, um, what about everybody else? And so I think that once you get to that kind of environment, that's massive empowerment because you don't have to worry about yourself so much because everyone else is worrying about you and you're worrying about everyone else. Like that would be a beautiful world. Elizabeth Sandler, I could not agree more that a world where all of us have moved past our narrow self-interest and are desiring to help others is a beautiful world. Um, as you've heard me say a thousand times, our vision at Scholars of Finance is a future where all finance leaders and investors 
steward the world's capital to serve the greater good. Um, in our vision, it, it is a world where all investors and finance executives have transcended. They are trying to serve others. They are serving a purpose greater than themselves. Um, and you as a leader have done that with scholars of finance. My last question, um, this is a bit of a softball I've been giving every one of our initial guests on this show. Um, you have been, you're on the board of scholars of finance. Uh, you're one of our board members. You've been a very, very dear mentor to me. You financially supported our organization. You've spoken to our students. You've mentored some of our students, uh, several of our students. Tomorrow, you're coming to speak to our national team, our staff, privately for a private coaching session. Thank you in advance for that. Um, you've just been so generous with your time, your talent, your treasure with Scholars of Finance. Why are you so passionate about Scholars of Finance and why and how would you encourage our listeners to get more involved and make an impact? You know, as I said, when I started my career, I never started out to be a finance person. And, and I really quickly figured out how important it is to making the world go round. And I say, if finance is at the heart of how the world moves and, and makes the world go round, we need to make sure it's moving it in the right direction. And the only way we can do that is if, again, the people that are part of leading finance really lead from a place that is that is grounded in in integrity and in character and in, in their own personal values. And so when I, you know, when I first, when we first met and I first found out about Scholars of Finance, that my first thought was, I, I think I dreamt this, right? Like, didn't I dream of this years ago that we would have <laughs> something like this, you know, after the, after the credit, after the global financial crisis? So I think with Scholars of Finance leadership, we're going to build even stronger finance leaders. We're going to build stronger financial institutions, and it's going to be better for the world overall. So I'm very passionate about it. It's very important to to me and to my legacy and to, to what I think of the future is. And I think you're doing a great job. I think the, the, the Scholars of Finance is a great organization and I'm thrilled to be part of it. Uh, thank you, Elizabeth. I, I appreciate the sterling recommendation and we're, we're so grateful for your support. Um, with that, I know we're at time and I know you've got a lot going on. So just want to thank you so much for joining us for investing in integrity today, sharing all of your insights, your story, your wisdom on how we can grow our careers, how we can find our passions, our strengths, align our careers to those um, and, and just all the inspiration. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. Really, really appreciate it. Very welcome, Ross. It's been an absolute pleasure. And I'm, I'm thrilled to be part of the, the kickoff of this podcast. So thank you so much. Amazing. Thanks. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Investing in Integrity by Scholars of Finance. I want to share a huge thank you to our advisors, directors, donors, team, and our members who make this all possible. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you have any feedback for us, you can send it to hello at scholarsoffinance.org or by visiting our website. Until next time, please join us on our mission to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow.